You're listening to the American Soccer Analysis Show. Dude, you're, you're the Tommy McNamara of podcasting. It's great. Thank you. Wait, what? With your hosts, Ian Lamberson. If you say one more bad thing about my growler, I'm going to cut you. And Harrison Crow. Patrick Mullins is what happens when you least expect it. From the kickoff to the shootout, we're amped up, we're amped up. Hello everybody and yes, welcome to the American Soccer Analysis Show. I'm your host Ian. With me today, not Harrison, in fact a very special guest. Uh, he's filling in for Harrison. He's a writer for American Soccer Analysis, of course. Stars and Stripes FC and Union Do. Uh, it's Jared Young. Say hey to everybody, Jared. Hello, everyone. It's good to talk to that unique group of people that loves American soccer and data at the same yeah. time. Yeah. Um, thank you uh, so much for filling in for Harrison. I um, am a little disappointed because I had... My original script for the show, I just had the first part was just browbeating Harrison for thinking Almiron wasn't one of the five best players in Major League Soccer. And I had that blocked out for 30 minutes. So maybe this will be better. Maybe maybe no one needs to hear that. I think we might get there, but we'll hold off on that a little bit. <laughs> hold off on that a little bit until we see what's going on. Um, I'm just going to get us started and start as we do every week with our interesting stat of the week. And this week's stat of the week is brought to you by me. Ian, your host. Um, I found this myself. Now, before I go fully into reading you the stat, I'm going to throw out some caveats here. The first one being that uh, all the extra I'm about to, to, to share with you does include penalty kicks. And a lot of people, for very good reasons, don't like to include penalties when analyzing players. But we're going to do it anyway because I didn't find another interesting stat. So for total expected goals this season... Miguel Almiron has 7.2. That's including penalties. To put this in context, Montreal, the whole team, has 7.1, and DC United has 6.8. Now, Almiron has taken five penalties, and again, that is making up a lot of that XG. It's a lot. He's actually averaging taking 0.6 penalty attempts per 90, which I don't have to tell you. That's that's an unusual amount of penalties to be taking, especially over, I believe he's near 800 minutes at this point in time. So, um... All that being said about Miguel Almiron, obviously a great player, obviously on a very offensive team. But my question for you, Jared, while we've got you here, is our XG model at ASA takes penalties into account. But I feel like when me and you talk or me and Harrison talk or when any of us are having a discussion about anything, um, we just strip penalties in the record. So why do we put them in the model in the first place? Well, we put them in the model because it's, it is the complete picture. And if you want to have compare goals to expected goals like everyone wants to do, you've got to include them. Plus... I mean, expected goals uh, factors in the fact that the, the penalty kick is, uh, what is it, 0. 0.75, 0. 0.8 expected mm-hmm. goal. So that's already factored in there. So, uh, it, you know, if he scores it, it, it actually doesn't lift his goals minus expected goals all that much, doesn't bias that number. Uh, however, if he misses, it is kind of a pretty big deal. And so that could get factored in. So there is some some reality you want to have in the model. But at the end of the day, if you're just trying to – Look at the on-the-field impact, the kind of open play impact, if you will. You kind of want to take it out. And that's generally how we compare players more frequently. And is that just because penalties aren't something that you can depend on? They're not, they're not a thing that you can regularly go. It's not like free throw percentage in basketball, for example, where you, you're pretty sure the guy's going to take free throws. Right now, right now Atlanta's on some ridiculous pace for, for penalty kicks, which we can almost be certain will not, they cannot maintain that pace. 
So this is true. You well, we'll talk about uh, the goals being scored in Major League Soccer. So yeah. The um, but that but I think that's that's the issue. Is you're sort of if you project off that number for Almiron, uh, you're going to come up with something that's ridiculous and can't be sustained. So you might want to if you peel off the penalties, you might have a a more realistic trend of what he's able to produce over the course of a season. Um, we also do it with occasionally um, free kicks as well, even though those are less, um, you're less likely to see a, an inflation of goals from free kicks unless you're Javinka. Um, but and that's something we get into a lot as well. Like when we were looking at uh, Sasha Question last year, um, you know, we were seeing raw numbers. These key passes were just like, whoa, oh my gosh, Sasha Question is just doing so many key passes. Uh, but a lot of those were coming off of set pieces. And that's not to say, I don't think we're saying that, that they're invalid, that they're not worth something, because they certainly are in a game state, right? They are. I mean, I think obviously the coach is selecting Kleshton to take those kicks because he's good at them, and you he should get credit for, for taking those kicks and doing them well. Again, though, it's all about the type of analysis you're trying to do. If you're trying to analyze Kleshton as a player, uh, in the in open play and how creative he is and how dynamic he is, you would want to perhaps peel those out. You peel them out for all the players you're comparing to get a sense of how they're managing the flow of a game. So I think it's really just comes down to ultimately what your goal is when you kind of pick your metric. All right. And knowing what we now know about Miguel Moran, would you agree with Harris that he's not one of the top five players in Major League Soccer? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I... You know, top five. Wow. I, you know, I, I don't know if that's that bold of a call to if he's, what is he, number six? I mean, I don't know. You could, you yeah, could argue, yeah, yeah. you could argue he's in that group. If you, if he's arguing he's out of the top 10, I think he's saying something dramatic. Yeah. But, uh, but, you know, saying he's out of the top five, I, you know, it's that, that's, a, I guess, a good debate. All right. We're just giving, uh, Harrison a tough time. So that since was, he our... can, since he can't respond. Exactly. You, this is what I've always wanted. This is a dream come true. He can't he can't counter any of my arguments from afar. Um, all right, that was our interesting stat of the week brought to you by me this week. Next week, somebody out there, one of our listeners, could provide it. That would be great. Um, hit us up on Twitter if you have any suggestions for that. Uh, all right, now it's time for our deep dive segment. And um, you brought some interesting stuff with you this week. Thank you, Jared. So it's been your dream to come on the new American Soccer Analysis Show. I know that. Everyone knows that. It's everybody's dream. Uh, what, what, what did you most want to talk about when we were pitching this? So a lot of buzz out there about the goal scoring rate in MLS. Yes. Uh, and it is actually really high. So I thought we'd dig a little deeper on the goal scoring rate, what's going on. And I have a theory or... I don't know if, yeah, I guess it's a theory, but I'll talk about one element of, of why I think it's happening. So first of all, let's get into the stats. All right. Uh, right now, MLS games are averaging 3.23 goals per game. That is 9% higher than the rate last year, and that is 17% higher than the rate just two years ago. Oh, by the way, two years ago was the first year the TAM was included. Not that I'm saying money drives any of this, um, uh, but I might. But uh, And if you look back to 2011, uh, the goals per game was 2.53. So we're 27% higher on a per-game basis 
in terms of goals being scored. So that's a dramatic increase. I don't think there's any leagues around the world that are that are staring at that type of change in in, in results. So, but you got to put that number in context. So what does 3.23 mean? Well, the concern I have is that if you look at the leagues and there's this website called soccervista.com that compares uh, all the goals per game in all the leagues around the world. It's pretty pretty insane. Um, none of the really good leagues are up above uh, about 3.1. So 3.23, you're starting to look at leagues that are pretty thin as far as reputation goes. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, the highest high-quality league on the list is 3.06, and that's the Bundesliga. Okay, wow. so MLS So MLS was below that last year, but now they've leapfrogged it significantly by about 7%. So, and then, but, but then if you look at the other leagues in Europe, if you look at the Premier League, La Liga, League One, um, Serie A, all of those are actually between 2.63 and 2.7. So the Bundesliga actually stands out. But if you're talking about the, the core leagues, the, the leagues that are considered the best in the world, you really are looking at leagues that are in the in that 2.7 goals per game range. So I guess the question I have is, is 3.23 too much? I mean, obviously, you'd rather have too many goals than too few goals. Uh, but the question is, is, it, is this a criticism of the actual quality of the defending in the league? And does this need number need to come down over time? Do you have any thoughts on that? You know, it's interesting. I haven't really thought about it like that before, but is there like a perfect blend of... Um, offense and defense and what that number looks like as a goals per game. Uh, three seems pretty good to me. I think, uh, you know, your two ones or three nothings, those are, those are pretty good entertaining games generally. Um, you certainly don't want to get too high or, or you definitely do lose all credibility. Um, but I think this is, like you said, when you pointed out Tam, I mean, I think this is obviously by design. This is what Major League Soccer wanted to do. Um, I don't know if they think perhaps that um, you know, standing out, uh, you know, if we want to be the goals league and, and we do get a lot of great goals and apparently we get a, a lot of goals period now. Um, but I can tell you when I do the, uh, when I do the Twitter, uh, for total MLS and I, I make a gif of a nice goal and it makes it out there into the world and past MLS and into to the European fans and things like that. Uh, I will get like 700 comments back saying, uh, trash defending or this is horrible goalkeeping. Uh, and so, it, whether that's true or not, and I, I think that they're being unnecessarily harsh, um, that does create that perception. Yeah, and I think I think that's where I'm going to head with my next bit of data. Uh, I think I think three point two three is high. That's actually higher than the Netherlands, which has a kind of a bad reputation for defense. That's where Jose, Josie Altidore made his name there, and obviously that didn't work out in other leagues. So. So the point being is it just seems like it's maybe too high and, and it, it very well could come down over the course of the year uh, yes. as, as, as defenses tighten up. But Yes, the, um, the, the, the English championship is, is, is fraught with uh, former uh, Eredivisie Golden Boot winners. Yeah, so, so, here's, so here's some other data that will color this. And what I'm going to look at is the investment in different positions across the league over the last you know, seven or eight years. So pulling from the, the Major League Soccer Players Union data, they actually tag where the money is going to defenders or forwards or midfielders or goalkeepers. And so if you take that data back to 2011, in 2011, 30% of the money spent in the league 
went to goalkeepers and defenders. 36% to midfielders and 34% to forwards. Okay. Take that forward, and you know that the, the amount of money in total has gone up dramatically. But the percentage of the dollars now spent on goalkeepers and defenders is down to 22%. 28% drop in the, the, the amount contributed to those two levels. Meanwhile, midfielders are up to 44% of the income, and forwards have actually stayed flat, which will surprise many, that the, the money spent on forwards. But there's a reason for that as we dig a little deeper. So forward play... Uh, has actually been roughly invested in the same, but the money is going to the midfielders and it's being taken away from the goalkeepers and defenders on a relative basis. So I would say that's a pretty clear indication that the defending has not been invested in by teams at the same rate of the, as the offense, and that's part of why this growth has happened. It gets actually worse. Oh, do you go ahead? Do you have a thought? You on know, that? there's it's it's an interesting idea, and I wonder. Because I'm thinking back to 2011 now, and I'm realizing even, you know, five, six years ago, like the pool of talent that a major league soccer team could realistically draw from was significantly smaller. And I wonder if just by design, you just had a better stock of defenders available uh, than you did. Like if you're looking at domestic players, like I, I, I feel like there's probably more MLS quality American defenders than there are, you know, superstar forwards that would have been available at that time. That that could be, and that could still be the case. And yeah. we know we know that the TAM is going to the international players, so you could actually be still funding solid American defenders, but at a cheaper rate, yeah. or relatively speaking. And that could be part of that as well. Well, and I don't think you see a lot of teams that kind of go into this and they look at all this new money and go like, man, it would be great if we could spend this on a dependable center back. And whether, I mean, except for maybe people like us and very weird soccer people that just really get into, uh, you know, organized defensive lines, you know, your dependable center back is not going to sell a ton of tickets. Uh, And I think obviously when we look at all this stuff, we have to keep in mind that that is the main goal of basically – Every major league soccer team is just to, to, to push that attendance as much as they can. Uh, there are a few teams that don't have to worry about that as much that seem to kind of get the get the numbers they want, um, you know, regardless. Uh, but they also kind of have a, a, a bit of a directive, I think, from, you know, to keep things a little bit exciting and to provide goals because that's what gets people in the seats. Um, I don't know. I wonder if there's an opportunity in the market for a team to just completely go the other way and just backload uh, and just bring in three amazing DP defenders. And... I mean, that, well, that's where I wonder if 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 give, you always want to run counter to the trend. I think at some level, if you want to differentiate yourself, and if yeah. everyone's spending their money on on offense, what if you overweighted your 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 salary on defense? I mean, it's worth thinking about for sure. And I think you can tend to get better value on a defender or a goalkeeper, like. If you look at where, if you kind of tiered them off, you know, it's like an S tier center back, an A tier center back. I think that the S tier center back is going to be cheaper still than the S tier forward or even the A tier forward. Uh, so there definitely is a spot there, I think, maybe where you could go and, and kind of carve a little spot in the market out for yourself. I just wonder if there's any team that would have the guts to do it. Yeah, I don't, I don't, that that is the question. I mean, it'll be interesting to see when the salaries come out. Perhaps we could 
we could analyze who's spending more on goalkeepers and defenders and seeing and see if they're actually successful defensively if that's actually working i mean it you know looking at two or three teams may not be a big enough sample to get a good sense but it it's worth looking at to see if that trend is happening or if anybody's noticed yeah and i think you've seen i mean we do have a couple of tam center backs uh i don't we have a dp we have two dp center backs that i can think of off the top of my head dlnut new england mensa at columbus um, obviously, Tim Howard is making a significant amount of money as a goalkeeper, but uh, otherwise, like uh, it does seem like that's the one kind of positional group where we're really seeing, um, you know, some Americans develop, uh, and, and and especially like outside backs, you can kind of get some young Americans there. But even at this stage, you're looking at mostly internationals there, so it, it's an interesting question. I, I kind of wonder if. Um, I wonder if this year would be any different. Like, I, I, off the top of my head, I can't imagine it's it's going to be all that significant. I think we've only seen more big spending kind of in the midfield for that number 10. That seems to kind of be what's in vogue right now to buy and chase. There's somebody out in the wings or, um, you know, less so with, like, I think we've seen less big-name strikers brought over, you know, Slotin notwithstanding, but, you know, he's just a TAM player anyway. That that brings up uh, the next layer that I want to of this onion that I want to peel back because right, you're kind of you're kind of you're kind of getting at the tactical yep. shift over this time frame as well, right? So 2011, I think we could all, I don't, you know, we we can probably think back that far, but we're all going to say that everybody was playing basically a four four two, right? Oh, uh, yeah. for the most part, and then oh, yes. and now and now it's the four two three ones, the four three threes, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, and that actually bears itself out in ro- roster distribution. So. Remember what I just said about the the shift in spending, but think about the fact that goalkeepers actually we, we, this this makes perfect sense actually are still eleven percent of the roster size. So in two thousand eleven, goalkeepers were eleven percent of the roster. They're still eleven percent. That makes sense. That hasn't right, changed. Yeah. Everyone has three, right? Yeah. But defenders, the percentage of defenders on rosters has gone up. So in two thousand eleven, twenty eight percent of the position positions on a roster were defenders. Now that number is thirty two percent. That's actually counter to the fact that the percentage of the salary has dropped from 30 from, well, in the case of defenders from 23 to 17. So you've had a drop in salary of 28%. Meanwhile, the number of defenders has grown 13%. So that's, that's an interesting uh, dynamic. You actually have more defenders on the roster. What's interesting is that um, midfielders have actually stayed about the same, but uh, the number of forwards on rosters has dropped. So remember when I said that the, the amount of money spent on forwards has stayed consistent. Uh-huh. Well, well, that uh, is partly because in 2011, forwards made up 24% of the roster, and in 2017, they make up 19%. So people are moving away from those two forward sets, and therefore oh. they're carrying less forwards. And that's why forward pay has been flat. But on they're a per-forward basis, yeah, exactly, they're spending more exactly. on that one forward. Exactly. So what, when you when you kind of go to the bottom line, defenders, the average salary of a defender is up forty five percent over uh, the last uh, what are we talking about seven years. Um, the average salary of all other players, which is obviously mostly midfielders and forwards, is up one hundred and eight percent. So they're getting disproportionately. I, I don't want to say raises, but they're bringing in. Uh, over two times the salary talent in that position, but the defenders are not getting the focus. So it's really fascinating what's happening. And I just, I do wonder if it's contributing to the very high goal rate we're seeing now. I think it is. And 
also, I wonder if there's a there should be a counter movement to actually pay some defenders and see what happens. Yeah, uh, who's going to be the team that that, that goes all uh, <laughs> that that starts the steel curtain back line and, and really really just chumps money into that? Uh, we've seen teams, I think, have a more defensive shape or look to themselves tactically, but I almost feel like that was more a result of. Um, I, I think that came as a result of the way investments went more than it was a planned thing. Like you look at Colorado, who's always sort of just had decent defenders around um, and never really did a very good job of going after these um, attacking guys. And I think that they're getting better at that. And they've got some, some very interesting uh, players this year. Uh, but, you know, we think of them, I think stereotypically as the defensive team uh, for most of the last modern ish MLS era. Um, yep. Of course, last year, Sporting Kansas City was a lights-out defense. Um, and the one thing that defense has is just it's been very consistent, um, you know, with Okara uh, staying healthy, um, Bezler just always being there and always being good. Um, but I don't really think that that was necessarily their plan either. I think they kind of went into that and said, all right, well, we're really good defensively. Um, we can even get rid of Dom Dwyer. Uh you know, kind of work with some younger Fords and on uh, some projects like that. So, yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a curious thing to see. And um, for all you expansion teams out there, Nashville Football Club, if you're listening, maybe this could be your thing. That's right. Come, That's come right. into the league hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> just, 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 just three giant six foot five center backs from. Uh, Let's see what happens. Brazil. Do three at the back. Let's yeah. go for it. All right. Awesome. So that is. Um, that is, uh, that is fascinating. And I think one of the teams that we can talk about when we talk about investment in defenders um, is uh, a team that's kind of gone through that a little bit recently. Uh, they have one designated player center back. Uh, their other guy wanted to be a designated player center back, and instead uh, they sent him to another team. Uh, and that is Vancouver uh, with Kendall Waston and, of course, Tim Parker. Uh, moving on, I think, is uh, it's kind of been whispered around a lot that he was looking for a, for a pay raise that would bring him more in line with Kendall Waston. Uh, understandably why Vancouver maybe didn't want to put two DP slots at center back, but nonetheless, that is the situation they're in now. And when we were talking earlier this week, uh, we were kind of noting about how <laughs> Vancouver fans uh, have gotten a little bit angry with their team. And it's not without reason, uh, kind of came to a head, uh, that six, nothing loss at Kansas city. There were the two red cards to Vancouver, but they were already down three goals at that point. So, um, there were a lot of tunes, uh, being sung. They made new chants uh, about playing, uh, boring soccer and how, uh, the manager wasn't doing well and the board wasn't very ambitious. And the, anyway, they won last week, but, uh, it was something that we kind of took a look at, uh, to see, what's going on with Vancouver? Like, can we find a reason why their play is not pleasing, why it's not exciting? And, uh, you know, you did a great job pulling some numbers. What did, what did you get? Well, yeah, first of all, yeah, I, it's like the curious case of the Vancouver Whitecaps. It's a very interesting team. They're clearly the bunker encounter team of MLS the last two seasons, um, but it's working for them. So it's, it's one of those things that Right, because they made the playoffs last year and they're sort of in playoff position as we speak. Whether or not they can sustain that is another thing. But when you play, when you possess the ball 31% of the time, even if you win, like they did, those are two statistics from last week, 
even if that happens, fans don't seem to be happy. They they want to see aesthetically pleasing soccer in addition to the winning. And mm. for whatever reason, you can't win enough if you're playing bunker and counter soccer. But what's, interesting, but what's interesting uh, is, uh, to me, is that um, I, I was looking at that game aside from the 31% possession, but I was looking at the number of crosses they had. And they had 66 passes in the final third, which is just a remarkably low number. For example, the New York Red Bulls had 149 passes in the final third in their game. So Vancouver had just 66. Again, fans are not going to be thrilled with that kind of excitement at the, in the end. They come to see 66 passes in 90 minutes in the, in the attacking third. What was bizarre, though, is that 18 of those passes were crosses. And that struck me as a very high number because usually if you're playing counterattacking soccer, you want to go straight down the middle. Uh, the last thing you want to do is go wide because kind of a, a wide wide passes are less likely to be complete, quite frankly. So and they, it's slow, a, it's they a, slow down it, your momentum too. They slow down momentum. You actually have to get wide instead of coming directly down the middle. Um, so so I thought that was odd, and I and I looked, and that you know that's so that's twenty seven percent of their passes in the final third were crosses, uh, and I looked at, at twenty seventeen games. And that happened just 14 times, that level of crosses as a percentage of final third passes. Happened just 14 games in 2017. Uh, and eight of them were by Vancouver. So this, is, hmm. uh, so this is clearly a tactic, if you will, purposeful or accidental. I hope it's not purposeful. Uh, that they, they are playing bunker and counter soccer, but getting wide when they're getting down the pitch and taking... Uh, like sort of less advantageous crosses. Interestingly enough, about 25% of crosses are completed in MLS. Um, and Vancouver last year is only completed 22% of them. And this year is only completed 20% of them. So they're not even that good at completing them. So how this team is actually being competitive for playoff positioning is, is kind of remarkable, to be honest. You know, what's weird to me is that uh, last year they were – doing that that kind of same thing um but they had freddie montero up top and freddie montero yep. is you know known for not being tall let's say um <laughs> and not being a great uh aerial forward now when the ball's at that level he's very good with his head um but i looked it up and he had 80 aerial duels last year and won 19 of them uh which isn't outstanding uh this year they go out and i i don't know like i i it's one of the few times i've seen vancouver get a player that makes a lot of sense for Vancouver. And they went out and they got Kai Kamara. And I don't think that there are a lot of guys, if any, in Major League Soccer that you would get if you want to cross the ball a lot to somebody. Yep. Um, but it's just strange to me that when Kai Kamara's been out, it's been Anthony Blondell or it's been Eric Hurtado. Last year, you know, it was Eric Hurtado or it was Freddie Montero. And throughout all of this, they just kept the same strategy. Yeah, I, it doesn't appear to be... A question of who the target is it's just this is what we do it's we we cross at a ridiculous clip when we're in the final third one, one quick one last other you know observation the other teams that had a level of crosses to final third passes that high last year were philadelphia houston la galaxy colorado and minnesota so it's not a list of teams that you necessarily want to emulate yeah, um, and so, and kinda... you know, Houston had a good, Houston had a great year last year, obviously. 
and, and Vancouver made the playoffs as well. So it, it can be successful, but in general, it's not company you really want to keep to do that consistently. I don't know how sustainable that, that strategy is or really even why they're doing it, but it, it, it's, it'll be an interesting if, thing to track. Yeah, I wonder if there's a any sense to... I feel like when I've seen teams uh, kind of devolve into uh, we're just going to cross the ball a lot. And Houston did it once a lot this year. Um, actually, it gets Vancouver, which is which is ironic, I guess. Um, you know, we're ultimately very unsuccessful because, again, you know, Vancouver has Kendall Waston back there. Vancouver has, uh, you know, they, they can defend that. And I don't think that crosses are particularly hard to defend if they're coming as predictably um, as they are. Like, you just kind of have to get guys in there. And while your forward, you know, has to be able to head the ball in the right direction at the goal at a proper speed, a defender can kind of disrupt it by just getting in the way or uh, impeding a jump at all or heading it in literally any direction that's not their own goal. And it's usually a pretty okay outcome. But nonetheless, Vancouver could be doing a lot worse. <laughs> there are a lot worse teams in Major League Soccer than Vancouver. <laughs> that's, that's absolutely right. It's a bizarre. It's a bizarre form of soccer they're playing, but, and it's and it's not gonna win them any, you know, beauty yeah. awards. But, but it, they're winning. You know, in uh, a couple other things I found out about them, and a lot of this is actually also covered in uh, something that will be getting published on ASA. Well, today, if you're listening to it when it's released. So, um, but uh, they actually are like third from the bottom in expected goals this year. Uh, so. They're outperforming it just just a little bit though, um, and that's kind of an interesting thing to look at also. And Lewi like getting the ball into the final third. I think I don't know if we touched this. Like they do that less than anybody any other team at Major League Soccer. That's that's not ideal. That's not ideal. So um, the way I kind of phrased it and, and the tack I took was to address whether or not Carl Robinson is a good coach or a bad coach i don't i don't really know how to say that one way or the other um but i guess what i would say is that if i was a vancouver fan and i was watching this week in and week out i probably also might rewrite some songs about <laughs> about the way things are going well here, here's what i would say uh, you know about the, the good coach bad coach thing I, i'm i'm a firm believer and i've written about this before um that Whatever tactic you're trying to employ, uh, committing to it is the key to success. If you commit to it, you'll find more success than if you, you sort of go halfway. And so, like, Vancouver is committed to this style of soccer, and I think that's partly why it's been effective. Uh, whether you like it or not, they, they continually play this way, and they're practicing it, and they think about it. And they play within that framework, and it and it seems to work. What what is a danger is when you sort of say, well, I, I want to be bunker encounter this game, or I kind of want to push forward this game, and 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 the team ends up having no identity, and that and that's a dangerous place to be, I think. I've often heard, not ever actually in relation to soccer, but someone once told me, and it struck me as spurious at the time, but but I'll bring it up here anyway, <laughs> that following a bad plan is better than having no plan. <laughs> I think yeah, that's I guess that's sums up what I just said, talked about. But <laughs> it's I think you know if you're if you're going to be a bunker and counter team, commit to it, kind of like a Burnley does in the Premier League, and just right. and just relish in it. And if you practice it long enough, you can actually get good at it as as they have. 
but we do also celebrate teams that we see or perceive to have tactical flexibility and we celebrate coaches that can can you know make those switches at halftime and all of a sudden the whole thing works differently um i just don't i mean looking at and this is just based on kind of who scored's ideas it's probably not the most 100 percent accurate you know but it looks like vancouver switch formations a bit uh like last year i think they had like four different formations they used um I don't know. I think that there's there's an element to to committing to your plan and sticking with it and letting that be your identity. But there's also uh, something to be said for not repeatedly running your head into a wall over and over again. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think I think you hear that talk about tactical flexibility more in the upper echelon. Yeah. And I think in the case of Vancouver, but but if you're sort of the Crystal Palace or the Burnleys of of the Premier League, you know you you know, that tactical flexibility is less important because you really just need to defend really well to survive, right? You know, that's kind of the survival tactic. And I think Vancouver may, may view themselves like that. Look, we don't have the money to, to, to buy the Almirons or the Giovinkos, and so we have to defend. And maybe that's, and we're just going to commit to it, and we're going to take 31% possession, we're going to win. Uh, and, that, and fans are going to have to live with it, but that might be their survival tactic. Maybe Vancouver and, are our patient zero for the uh, all defense meta that we need to see. Maybe that's just, true. Maybe that's they're true. actually. Maybe the answer isn't doing this last. Maybe it's just leaning it into it even harder, and that's how they go on to be MLS Cup champions. It'll be a great story, regardless. Uh, all right, that was our our deep dive segment. Uh, we are going to just finish up with some game reviews real quick. Kind of talk about what happened around the league, uh, quick hits style. Uh, Obviously, uh, last week started with Vancouver Salt Lake. Uh, Vancouver did win that game two nothing. I think we've probably discussed Vancouver more than most people that listen to the show care to hear. So we'll just move on from that one. Uh, start off the next day, Toronto back from CCL. Finally, uh, first game post CCL is kind of an interesting idea. How are they going to respond mentally? How are they going to respond emotionally? Um, you know, we saw them jump right out early on Chicago. Uh, go up early, and then ultimately just get gassed. And uh, Chicago uh, comes back to steal a point. Alan Gordon, who would have guessed? Everybody I know. Everybody. I'll tell you what, though. You know, this was interesting because I saw the scoreline pass, and you go, oh, Toronto's up two zip. They're refocused. They're back. They're Toronto, right? So everybody sort of said, oh, Toronto's back. They, they had their little focus on the CCL. But then Chicago started to impose their will on the road. Uh, you know, against an in theory superior Toronto team. I thought that was fascinating. They deserved the point. I thought there was a penalty at the end that should have been called that should have gotten them the draw earlier. Um, and, but then they got, you know, the Alan Gordon hit. So I, you look at that Chicago won the expected goals battle. They got the point. I think, you know, it's only one game and, and uh, Toronto still got a long way to go, but boy, they really are digging a, a pretty deep hole here. They are, and it, it the more obviously like there's some forgiveness here. Like you're gonna still be tired after that Champions League trip. After that, there's still the hangover. Yep, they're still in that hangover, and it's not like it's not a party hangover. It's like a wake hangover. So it's an even worse hangover. <laughs> and uh, you know, it, it it's it's definitely too early to call anything for that. But the more like you look at Toronto and you realize just how much they gave up in pursuit of the Champions League, like how much of a head start they gave Atlanta and New York City Football Club. And those aren't teams that needed a head start to begin with. Um, 
it's going to be hard for them to kind of claw back up into this picture. And I would be the last person in the world to tell you that they're not going to do it because I think they can and they probably will be yep. certainly the up there yep. uh, you know, by the end of the year. But uh, it is definitely gut check time. And uh, this was the greatest team in Major League Soccer history last year. And it's kind of time to see if they can find that year or one above that even uh, going forward. Well, the league is putting a lot of pressure uh, or a lot of emphasis, I should say, on you know doing well in the Champions League. Mm-hmm. And Tor- Toronto is a great story this year. But if they have a rough season and they wimp, limp into the playoffs and they you know have a tough road battle, right? So this is the best team in history. Yeah. And if, if it's perceived that the Champions League sort of cost them this season, that's going to change how teams approach it perhaps next season. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think you look at all of the teams, I mean, all of the, the, the MLS teams that were involved in Champions League, and they all came out of the gate very, very sluggish and hurt. Um, even Rebels, you know, Rebels probably came out the best of all of them, and they're doing okay in the league still. Uh, Seattle also, you know, took a lot of injuries there as well, and then they've come out really, really sluggish, but they tend to do that anyway. So, um, yeah, that is definitely something to keep an eye on going forward. Um, next up, we had Philadelphia 3, DC United 2. Um, I'll be completely honest. I did not get to see this game because <laughs> it was on Univision. Uh, what, what, what were your thoughts on that? I know you watched the Union play. I I never miss a Union game. I I live outside the Philly Burbs. I, I live 15 minutes from Talent Energy. So, um, yeah. So I, I watched the game. It was uh, you know, and Philadelphia has we might talk about this in a future episode, but has just gone really strong possession oriented offensively. Um, uh, they had 61% possession in this game. They completely dominated 23 shots to four, nine shots on goal to three. I mean, the fact that they only won three to two is a little bit of a crime. They gave up some cheap soft goals because they have a young defense, uh, but they, they clearly were in control of this entire game. They actually had 608 passes, which they only did, which they only did one time in 2017, and obviously hadn't done this year. So that's a rare. It was a rare feat of, of dominance for Philadelphia in that three to three to two win. Now, uh, not having they, seen but it, the, but just reading about it, uh, one of the things, and I've gotten away on this show for every episode so far this season without having to say this gentleman's name, uh, but your new number ten, Burek Dokul. Burek Dokul. Dokul. Yeah, something. Dokul. All right. I, yeah. Uh, Deutsch call or something like that. Yeah, it's Deutsch tough. call. He might have had a little bit of a coming out party, huh? He did, and there's been criticism of him. But I, you know, I, look, I, I'm one of the more critical people of the union. So, it's, but I will say that if you're trying to change uh, stylistically from a kind of middling reactive team to a possession oriented team, and you're trying to get your midfield to control the game, that is not an easy thing to just move to. Um, and, and I think they've done an admirable job there. They're obviously failing in the final third. They're not able to make that last pass, but that's part of the process. It, it, you know, as you, as you change systems as they're really trying to do and become more proactive, uh, it's going to take time. So I've been a little bit holding my tongue on Deutsch call, uh, and kind of waiting to see how this team kind of gels in the final third. And I think they finally got a few good moments against dc so hopefully uh, that'll buy them some time they go into a tough stretch though this week at toronto so uh and then a couple other games on the road in in may so it'll be interesting to see how they if they can keep this up 
All right. Moving on, we have Atlanta United for Montreal Impact 1. I don't really even know how to, like, discuss Atlanta games anymore. <laughs> like, everything that could happen to their opponents does. I, I don't know. It, it's just uh, whatever they're doing down there, it's it's so effective. Uh, Montreal even took a lead and held it for a while early in this game. Looked like that was going to be, uh, you know, maybe this wasn't going to be Atlanta's day. Uh, spoiler alert, it's never not Atlanta's day anymore. Uh, they came on late. Uh, a guy scored two free kicks, Kevin Kratz. Um, which is, you know, something we've only seen Javinko do in recent memory. And this guy doesn't even, like, get on the field much. And he just comes on for, like, a cameo and just scores two free kicks. Um, Montreal, I, they are looking, they are looking like, I don't know. I, I don't have a lot of hope for Montreal right now. I know that there's, this is a transition period. They've got a new coach. Um, they have some interesting attack pieces. I like Jason Vargas. I like... Ignacio Piotti a lot still. I think he's one of the better players in the league. Uh, but just, I don't know. Uh, they've, they've had a rough going of it this year, and, and, and the expected goals on that game, uh, you know, Atlanta at 2.68, Montreal at 0.63. Even though Montreal had a lead for a while, they just were always kind of second best. Yeah, they were uh, – it was an admirable effort. They defended very well for 60 to 70 minutes before they started to get opened up in the middle. And that really opened the floodgates. And I think anytime you bunker in, I mean, you referenced Vancouver losing six to nothing after being down three to nothing. Anytime you kind of bunker in and give up the ball, as soon as the, the goals begin, they just flow because now you've got to come out of your shell. You mm -hmm. open up space. Mm -hmm. The team is already used to being on top of you, and things tend to kind of unwind. It was unfortunate. Montreal played a pretty gutsy first half, uh, but then Atlanta was just, it's just too much offense. Uh, so we wait yet again to see which team will be the, the one to finally slow Atlanta down again. Uh, moving on, New York City Football Club 3, FC Dallas 1. Uh, I think this one was kind of expected. FC Dallas was, of course, the last remaining undefeated team in Major League Soccer. Uh, New York City Football Club, though, is just a wee bit better. Uh, Dallas gave up the goal early, hit, hit back right away, and then, you know, David Villa kind of started doing David Villa stuff and... There's really not much else to say about that. Uh, FC Dallas with 1.08 expected goals. Uh, New York City Football Club with 2.54. So, um, yeah. Uh, again, Atlanta, New York are clearly kind of separating themselves from the rest of the pack of the league right now. And uh, it's, uh, you know, other than that one misstep in Portland where they lost 3 nothing, New York City Football Club has been basically flawless this season. They have. To me, this was just another solid, consistent performance where they're in control. So it'll be interesting to see, yeah, how they they in Atlanta kind of jockey jockey at the top of the East going forward. Yeah. All right, New England 1, Kansas City 0. This was probably the worst game of the season, um, <laughs> I think. And I don't, I don't think anybody that is a sporting Kansas City or New England Revolution fan would disagree with me. Uh, New England, of course, get the one goal on a very um, – Strange. We'll say strange uh, moments, uh, kind of getting bogged down with an offside call that wasn't there. Teal Bunbury kind of goes ahead and finishes it just sort of casually. Nobody's paying attention. Nobody's yeah. really looking or going at 100%. They go to video review because he put it in the net, and then that way they can say, oh, no, it came off an SKC player, therefore the goal is good. 
Teal Bunbury did everything right. He was the only player in that whole situation that did exactly the right thing. Um, but other than that, neither team able to amass even one expected goal. And uh, I don't know. It felt like the mask kind of just lost. It just completely deflated at that point. New England almost looked apologetic. Uh, Sporting Kansas City were just aggrieved. <laughs> uh, it was not the finest showcase of Major League Soccer. No, that's true. Yeah, I mean, from an expected goals point of view, very even game, very boring game. Uh, New England just got the odd, the odd goal. They they've had a great start to the season, and so this is some of the, this is the way the ball bounces for some teams that are that are hot right now. Yeah. Uh, speaking of teams that are hot, uh, neither of these two teams uh, in the next game were <laughs> Minnesota United did get a 2-1 victory over Houston. Uh, Houston looking the much stronger side, but Minnesota at home uh, able to get it done. Uh, Houston is an interesting team this year. They do lead the Western Conference in expected goals. Um, they definitely, uh, eye test-wise, have you know Elise, who's the best XG plus XA guy uh, in Major League Soccer, if you strip penalties, which we, we covered earlier. Uh, otherwise, it's Almiron. Um, but they're just not... Their expected goals just aren't turning into actual goals. Yeah, so I, I, I was very intrigued by the fact that uh, Minnesota lost the expected goals battle by 1.3 goals in this game, yet one. Uh, and so I actually did a little research, uh, including games from last year. Uh, 17% of the time, home teams lose the expected goals. Let's let's pretend there's an expected goals universe where games are decided. Uh, that only 17% of the time that the home team loses the expected goals battle by one or more goals. Okay, so it's pretty rare that that happens. And then a th actually in a third of those games, this number was actually high, in a third of those games, the home team actually wins. Um, and it happened in, in, four, in the last 461 games, that exact scenario has happened 25 times. So I, I, I thought that was going to be much more rare, but apparently... Apparently it's not, but it's still a pretty odd occurrence to lose the expected goals battle at home, but happen to win the game. It's very, it's one of those things that in my mind, I look at this and go like, all right, these are professional soccer teams. Like they should play about as good someplace else as they play here. Like that makes sense to me on some level, but then like looking at the actual data involved, it, it's just not true at all. It's always like just the favor of the home team. has got such a big advantage, especially in this league. Yeah. It's true, and so that 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 plays a that plays a factor. Even if you even if you dominate, as Houston appears to have, yeah, you know, it's the the home crowd. Maybe maybe it's calls they get or yeah, uh, whatever whatever the case may be. <laughs> All right, moving on to New York Red Bulls versus Los Angeles Galaxy. Uh, the Red Bulls win this one three two two. Uh, this game kind of marred a bit at the end with some video review shenanigans and controversy but all things considered uh new york red bulls were a better team on the day los angeles had that brief uh you know kind of explosion with lot joining um since then kind of cooled off a little bit and uh it's interesting to see kind of think about what a position they're in if even bringing a guy like Zlatan on isn't going to be able to kind of propel them uh, kind of out of this ennui they've been in for the last year or so. Yeah, Zlatan's not going to help them defensively, and that seems to be the you know a big issue with LA. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, giving up three goals at home. You know, 
The Red Bulls are good, but you just can't do that. Just can't do that. Bradley Wright Phillips turned uh, master playmaker this week. It's kind of an interesting uh, twist on things. And he actually, if you drop your our minutes floor down to 400, uh, and you can do this yourself on the uh, interactive table at www.americansocceranalysis.com. Uh, to 400 to kind of include them so, uh, amongst players of 400 minutes. He actually took the uh, XA plus XG uh, per 96 lead uh, over Elise this weekend. So mm. uh, good for good for Bradley Wright Phillips. I, I, if he turned into a, a kind of like shadow striker creator player late in his career, that would be the greatest renaissance I've ever seen in this league. Yeah. One, one more stat on the Red Bulls thing. They had 149 final third passes, as I mentioned. But counter, but counter to Vancouver, they only attempted six crosses in that game. Still scored three goals. So clearly a much more exciting, dynamic team in the final third than Vancouver. Yeah. All right, kind of winding down here. Orlando City 2, Colorado 1. Uh, Orlando City wins late on a penalty. Um, they are now six games in a row and have kind of grabbed onto that third place spot uh, in, in the East behind Atlanta, New York City. With Toronto racing up at some point this year, you have to expect that. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see if Orlando can make this form consistent. And if so, this is going to be by far like the best side they've ever had. Absolutely. I, you know, Between Orlando and New England, you've got uh, a couple of people who you know, may, may make it interesting for Toronto here as they try to climb the table. Uh, okay, moving on. Columbus 2, San Jose 1. Uh, San Jose not bringing a lot to the table here in this one. 0.86 expected goals. Columbus 2 expected goals and 2 actual goals. Love it when that happens. Uh, Columbus are just quietly plugging away and are just another one of those teams that's going to be in that. There are so many good teams in the East that like there's a real possibility that if Toronto do not get it started soon, they could have trouble kind of climbing in there because Columbus are going to keep getting points. Atlanta's going to keep getting points. New England's going to be getting points. Um, yeah, uh, it's just a very interesting conference right now. Definitely the, the more exciting of the two. It really is, yeah. Uh, our final game of the week was Los Angeles Football Club in their brand-new stadium, first-ever uh, game played there. There was a lot of Will Ferrell talk before the game. There were birds. <laughs> there was ceremony. Um, they win one nothing over Seattle. Uh, on a bit of a – it was not a great moment for Stephen Fry at the end of the game there. Uh, Lawrence Simon taking a long free kick very hard, uh, just kind of knuckling around, bounces off his hands and into the goal for the last kick of the game. Uh, watching that game, I would have said that Seattle had the better chances, but like looking at this XG data we've got in front of us, uh, LAFC with 2.09, uh, Seattle with 1.40. Yeah, I mean it's it's a exciting win and moment for MLS to have you know, LAFC open up the stadium and they get obviously a dramatic, exciting goal, even if it's a bit of a howler. I looked at mm -hmm. the expected goals of that shot; it was point oh three three probability of going in from there. So you just think about the probability of all this happening, yeah. and then Fry Fry, of course, could have just kind of punched it away. I think trying to catch a knuckleball is a little dangerous, especially towards the end of the game when you can. You don't have to worry too much about time or position, but yeah, it's unfortunate. It is unfortunate. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on with LAFC now too. Um, 
late last night, and I didn't get a chance to put this in the script, but uh, they went out and managed to part with around a million in allocation monies to buy Lee Nguyen, um, which is a fantastic get for any team, um, but especially Los Angeles Football Club, who are going to be dealing with some players, uh, you know, leading for the World Cup. Uh, Urena just had to go into some surgery uh, for something went wrong with his face. There was a collision with him and Fry earlier on the game. Uh, I don't really know what the extent of that is, uh, timeout-wise, but this could be a crucial pickup. Oh, I totally agree. I think they've obviously established themselves as someone you've got to take seriously in the West, and now uh, offensively they get pretty exciting. I mean, they were already interesting, but now I'd say this adds a new level of uh, – of intrigue offensively for them. So it's a really great, really great pickup. Um, and like you said, I think as, as they maybe lose some talent over the next few months, this is a, this is a great depth move as well in that, in that regard. So, you know, they're, they're contenders now for sure in the West. I, you know, yeah. Uh, in fact, I really, it's, think it's a wide right. open West, but they, yeah, they're, they're, they're one of the top teams right now. Yeah. I think they're really the team that's most kind of set themselves apart, especially since they've been doing it until this time, like entirely on the road as well. And now they've got a homestand where they can really kind of dig their heels in a bit and uh, they could be looking looking pretty high off the table. They're already way ahead on points per game. Um, yeah, well, that's it. Those were all the games. Excellent. We did it. We finished the show. Um, thank you very much for coming on, Jared. This was a lot of fun. It's my pleasure. Thanks for uh, having me. Yeah, where can people follow you on Twitter.com? Uh, I am at Jared E. Young. Jared E. Young. On Twitter. Uh, listen, I follow Jared. It's a good time. I recommend everybody does it out there if you're listening. Uh, you can find American Soccer Analysis on Twitter at Analysis Evolved. That's at Analysis Evolved. You can visit our website, www.americansocceranalysis.com. Got a lot of great content going up this week. Uh, Chalk Talk just went up today. Uh, Jason Poon wrote about... Uh, Lee Nguyen in LAFC and he goes into a lot more depth than we were able to hear on the show um, we've got lowered expectations dropping soon uh, setting the table a new feature from uh, Eric uh, Walcott it's, it's really entertaining looks the best passes of the week uh, expected narratives from me will drop tomorrow or today as you're listening to it um, and it's always uh, special projects that some of the smarter guys are out there doing and, and researching and bringing in so definitely point your browsers in that direction uh, and, uh, and give us a visit uh, feel free listeners to send in questions if you have any about soccer analytics or I wouldn't say any subject is, is off limits but we, we you know soccer-ish would be good uh, also if you have an interesting stat of the week hit us up at Analysis Evolved uh, you can find me on Twitter at Total MLS on the weekends doing gifts match day commentary and the like thank you so much for listening thanks to Jared for joining us uh, we will be back next week and until then enjoy the soccer 